0: We are in our series on the book of John, talking about believing in the name of Jesus. And today I have the privilege of bringing to you John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. We're going to open up by reading uh, this passage together, and then I'm going to jump into prayer here. All right, let's let's do this. It's kind of long, but we got this. The next day, again... John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven and earth open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your word. We're stewards of it. And you've given it to us so that we may have life and believe in your name and know you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and reveal Jesus to us. I pray that you would make the word alive to us. God, I pray that you would draw our attention in to only you, that we would see you, that we would come to you as we are, not hiding who we are, but that we would come to you broken, needy people, needing to see Jesus so that we could have faith, so that we may have eternal life. And Lord, I I, I pray, God, that you'd come and stir our hearts. God, cultivate love for Jesus. We can't do that on our own. I pray that you would bring clarity to me as I speak, God, and in humility to treasure, God, the word before us. Do your work. We invite you. Come do work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've, we've gone through this before, but I want to refresh us why John is writing this book. He, he lays it out in John 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so we need to be informed that true life is only found in the name of Jesus. He's clarifying that, look, if you want life, if you want eternal life, We're gonna talk about Jesus and we're gonna lay out and clarify that life is only found in the name of Jesus. True life is only acquired by believing these specific things. One, that Jesus is the Christ, meaning he was sent of God as the Messiah to redeem people, to rescue people, to be the Savior. And so he, John's laying this out that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the one saving, and that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's not just saving people, he's sent. He's begotten of God, he's from God, he is God, and he's come to save us. And so our hearts need to go in this disposition of knowing that Jesus has come to save us. And it's my hope that, Our hearts will be in this posture as we unfold our text. The nature of belief in Jesus, he is savior, he is God, he is life, and we get life when we believe in him. Believing in Jesus is important. Life doesn't just happen when we leave room for other things. We can't be casual about receiving eternal life in Jesus. This is something to go after. John's laying before us the treasure of heaven, the treasure of the universe, the center point, the only point of our salvation. His name is Jesus. He's a person. He lived a real life, and he loves us. And so my hope is that we will clear away all the other things that we think save us or make us good or give us some kind of merit before God. Because what John's laying out here is that only Jesus does that. We need to be aware of functional pluralism and realize that it's not Christianity. What I mean by that is sometimes we come to church on Sunday and say, man, I love Jesus. You know, I put my hands up. They're playing my song. The butterflies fly away. And we're we're raising our hands to Jesus, and it goes well. And then the rest of the week, we're giving our hearts to something else. We're giving our attention to something else. And what John draws us to is, is realizing that Jesus is the only one that we're called to worship, that we're called to give our lives to. And so what pluralism is, is believing that there are many gods and believing um, and even really living your life in a way that would say there are many gods, giving yourself to many things for comfort, for pleasure, for redemption. And so what John does is he's bringing the attention, saying, no, 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 your wealth doesn't save you. Your cars, your status, they don't save you. Your family life doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Salvific eternal life meriting belief Bringing about belief is a byproduct of giving ourselves to the truth that Jesus proclaims about himself. What I mean by that is, Jesus is showing us who he is in this. And the only way to be saved is to believe what Jesus says about himself. And so, what we want to do is say, okay, we've got all these ideas of who Jesus is. You know, Jesus loves everyone, he does. And he gave his life. And sometimes we want it to mean things that it doesn't mean. And so what I hope to do, what I think this passage does, is clarify that what Jesus says about himself is the truth that we need to believe and treasure and long for and claim. He didn't leave us on our own. He made himself known. Isn't it great that Jesus didn't just say, okay, I'm God, if you could just follow me. In fact, in the Old Covenant, he gave commandments, right? He required things of us, but then in the New Testament, and the book of John lays it out, it says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He didn't say, save yourself. He said, I'm coming to save you. He didn't say, I'm the only object that you should worship. I'm the only God that you should worship. He said, I'm coming to make myself known so that you can see and know that I am God. The word became flesh so that the flesh could become like the word. He didn't just show us the way. He came to change us. He came to restore us to what we're called to. By believing upon Jesus, we have life in his name. Only belief in Jesus merits eternal life. Let's jump into our text for today. John 1, 35 through 37. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples And I just stopped there at that word again. I almost wrote it out. I was like, grammatical error, grammatical error. They don't know what they're doing. And then I realized this has been said before. So the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. This wasn't the first time. If you go back five verses, Jeff covered this last week. It says in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. What do you mean, John? You were born before Jesus. You showed up on the national spotlight before Jesus. What do you mean he ranks before you? I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed, to Israel, and John bore witness. There's a difference between witnessing and bearing witness. You can only bear witness if you've witnessed. You see, and then you say, you testify. So this is something John's experienced, and he's saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. For some reason, in our text, it says the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked away and said, behold the Lamb of God. Now, if I'm the disciples, knowing what I know, which is tough because they didn't know what I know now because this is written now, After a big speech like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your sin, my sin. I don't think John would have had any disciples left. Right? Unless they were blind to the fact that atonement was walking right in front of them. That Jesus, the Son of God, who came to take away sin was in their midst, and they missed it. So the next day, again, grace. 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 God doesn't just say, here's your chance. He comes at us again and again and again. Behold the Lamb of God. I have nine observations, not just from this text, but from our full text. And my observation from these three verses is Jesus is the only one who can fully take away our sin. We can come to be baptized. We can do right things. We can observe the law. But Jesus is the only one who can take away our sin? And so what John's saying is, behold, draw your attention to, draw your focus to, linger a while, focus, zone in on the lamb that's gonna carry you from death to eternal life. That's what this behold means. It's not cute like, oh, nursery wall, John, a lamb. You know, behold, oh, there's a beautiful little lamb on the nursery wall. This is, so that's not a nursery wall, but you guys get the picture. John is proclaiming a life and death matter. And so we have to look into this idea of lamb and, and sacrifice. Why lamb? Lambs are innocent. Lambs are lambs. I mean, you clean up after lambs man, what? Man, I would have been like a stallion. But Jesus didn't come as a stallion. And that wasn't the analogy for me. He's a lamb. So in Isaiah 53, 4 through 8, there's this prophetic picture of what the Lamb of God does. Surely, If we could get this verse on the screen, Isaiah 53, 4 through 8. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So right there, we're we're like little lambs, going our own way, doing our own thing. And that's what iniquity means, going our own way. What God did by sending his son was take That. Take the sin, take the shame, take the weight of going our own way and place it on Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. So you've got lamb going your own way in iniquity, and you've got lamb led to the slaughter. This lamb wasn't going his own way, this lamb was led. This lamb was submissive. This lamb was going to the slaughter for one purpose. And as a sheep, before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. And there's so much in the Old Testament, these pictures of lambs. We know even from Passover, there's this picture of the lamb that on the final plague, when God was delivering his people from Egypt, he told Moses, he told the leaders, look, tell your people, get a perfect lamb, paint blood over the door. And when the spirit of death passes over, Your people will be protected because of the blood of the lamb. So there's that prophetic picture, that Jesus' blood from the perfect lamb is the perfect blood that covers us. But not only that, in the Old Testament, there is all sorts of animals, bulls, goats, that would be brought to the priests, perfect ones, and they would be murdered on an altar for the sins of the people, and there would be a process of imputation where the priest who would represent the people would put his hands on the animal before it was sacrificed as a sign of passing on the sin to them. And so there's this picture, but not only that, there's a further prophetic picture in Revelation that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before time, that before, before the beginning, of the world Jesus was the one who gave his life in purity and holiness to be a sacrifice for the sins of people and so John's heralding he's proclaiming Jesus doesn't just take away our sins he bore the consequence for our sins it's not that here's the thing It's not that Jesus, like, took our sins out of town. Our sins were dealt with. And I think this needs to soak in a little bit. I want to linger here just for a minute. Um, I don't like the don't judge me clause. Because what I think it does is say, we're acknowledging something in our hearts And I don't want the punishment that I receive and that I'm due. And what Jesus has done is he said, no, you are guilty. You're guilty of wrong thoughts. You're guilty of wrong motives. You're guilty of not being perfect. You're guilty of not being like God. And judgment did happen. But what happened was all the guilt from our lives was placed on Jesus and dealt with. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took the pain. He took the judgment. So to say, I don't want the judgment is saying, wait, no, no, no. Judgment did happen, but it didn't happen for you. It happened on Jesus, who took the punishment for your sin, who took the pain that you deserved. So don't make light of that. We look to the Savior and say, I can't believe you took my sin. I can't believe you took my shame. Why would you do that? I deserved the judgment. You didn't. You were the perfect Lamb of God. There's a lot in this heralding. That's why John had to say it again and again. And let me encourage you, as believers, it is our proclamation. If people at work don't get it the first time, go to them again. Behold, God has taken your sin. Trust in him. Lay your iniquity on him because it's been dealt with. Trust him. There's this grace here that he comes at us again and again. Jesus took our place for our sins. When we behold the lamb, satisfactory atonement is realized. Meaning it's already been paid for. He's already done it, but when we look to Him, when we look to Him, we start to realize He did pay for my sin. We start to realize there's stuff in my heart, there's stuff in my life that needs to be dealt with. There's only one place to go. Me of all people, I can testify. I'm getting emotional right now. Past couple of weeks, I have screwed up my life so many times. And to go to Jesus and say, I, I'm done trying to pay for my sin... I'm done trying to pay for my brokenness. I'm done trying to pretend like I fit in with DC. I'm done trying to pretend like I'm perfect. You paid it all for me. And there's only one God that I can go to. There's only one humble God that would come and say, I'll take away your sin. And so what John's saying here is, behold your salvation Behold, your Savior. Behold, your sins have been paid for. Behold, you have been set free. Behold, the case is closed. He's not just saying, this is Jesus, you should worship him, he's one of the religions. This is for humans. It's for people with sin. This is for people with guilt. He's heralding, proclaiming, This is heavy, but this is what church is about. We're treasuring Jesus, the real Jesus, together. Second observation, disciple-making is all about turning over our disciples to Jesus. In verse 37, it says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Notice John didn't say Oh no no no. Sorry, Jesus, these are my disciples. Go get your own. You're really damaging my church growth plan right now, Jesus. He was constantly in a posture of these aren't my disciples, these are your disciples from the beginning. These were these are people called to follow you, not me. You, not me, you. He is greater. He must increase, I must decrease. There is one who ranks higher than I, who came before me. Constantly, John's posture is, you should follow Jesus, not me. And we need this. In our Christian circles, there's, I mean, we've been labeled as cool, man. It is easy to be in the church and be cool. And we embrace it. And, we need to never have a posture of, I'm so cool that you miss following Jesus. Our whole life needs to be committed to, I'm bringing forth people, I'm raising up disciples that they might be disciples of Jesus. There's only one way to be a follower of Christ, to be so enthralled with him as the Christ, the son of God, the perfect lamb, that we yield all our strength to proclaim his true identity to other people. I'm telling you, if you've been so caught in the grace as to see the Lamb of God, let me encourage you to carry a posture of follow him. There are sinners at work that need justification, that need someone to pay for their sins. And we should be so humble and broken enough to say, I know a guy And tell them. Jesus takes away your sins. Third observation. Our treasure is that which we lead others to. If you want to know what your treasure is, if you want to know what someone else's treasure is, see what they're bringing other people to. Verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, "'What are you seeking?' Now, is Jesus, does he really need to ask that? Was that an inquisitive question? Or was that a heart-revealing question? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So are they seeking his location and residence for the night? Because this is a weird conversation. So he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Check this out. People begin to follow Jesus. Jesus asks, What are you seeking? They respond, Where are you staying? Jesus responds, Come and you'll see. Was anything accomplished in that conversation? (laughs) like, oh, okay, we're going to check in there too. (laughs) It wasn't really going that direction. Watch what happens, though. This was a heart-testing question. Jesus was asking, what are you seeking? And do you know how Andrew, let's see, It was Andrew, responded, we have found the Messiah. The way to know what you're seeking is what you share with others. If you're all about a movie, you're going to share that with others. And so Jesus was asking, what are you seeking? And His answer is, we have found the Messiah to another person. He didn't answer Jesus directly, but it exposed his heart that because he was going this direction, his emotions were going this direction, his joy, his passion was going this direction, that he shared it with another person. And so you're going the direction that you bring other people with you on Does that make sense? He was testing where their hearts were. Fourth observation When we're brought to Christ, we get a new identity. Verse 42 He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Part of me doesn't like this verse because every time people hear my name's Peter, they're like, oh, you're a rock, bro. I'm like, bro, you don't know me. You don't know me. You know, because like Peter, I guess, means Petros, which means rock, rocky even. I'm rocky. <laughs> and so anytime there's a you shall be called Peter, I'm like, can we not talk about this verse? But what's happening here, just simple observation is when you're brought to Jesus, be prepared to be passively changed forever. When you're brought to Jesus, he's gonna give you a new identity. When you're brought to Jesus, he's gonna change you. Fifth observation, the call to Christianity is solely a call to follow Jesus. John 1:43, follow me. There's a lot more in that verse, but it comes down to this. Follow me. He didn't say, I need you to do this, and then this, and then this. It was all about just one person. Christianity is about following one person, whichever direction he goes. It's about going into the word and saying, who is Jesus? Where is he going? What is he doing? How can I know about him? If you think it's anything else, it's not Christianity. Following Jesus is about following him, and that's why he keeps it simple. He doesn't want them to do anything else. Take communion, you should probably be baptized. Um, If you could work in the children's ministry 10 months, and then we'll see. (laughs) Then you can become a member. It's like, bro, he's already in Galilee at that point. You know what I'm saying? Like, just follow Jesus. Jesus. Notice that the only condition was to follow him. There is no Christianity that is not solely centered on him. And here's the thing, pluralistic focus leads to pluralistic following. Don't think that you can say, I'm following Jesus, and hear the call, follow me, from 10 other attention getters. I'm telling you, your boss is going to say, follow me. The stock market's going to say, follow me. Walmart's gonna say follow me. Your mom's gonna say follow me. Your dog. Like who's on a leash here? Everyone's gonna be saying follow me. And we've got the decision to say, I'm going after Jesus. Let's my whole goal for today is like, Jesus, let's follow him. Let's do it, okay? Let's be the church. Let's do this. And so what we want to do is chisel away all the things that aren't fueling that and conducive to that. We want to be serious about following Jesus in this context, knowing who he is, knowing how to share him, knowing how to stand firm in the midst of trial. That's why we're here. Sixth observation, friendship is the platform for discipleship. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. The proclamation of discipleship is come and see. It's nothing more than that. It should be, let's open the Bible and see who Jesus is. Because, Right, what are we doing? Leading people to see Jesus clearly. Friendship is a gift that is meant to yield to the gift of being able to introduce our friends to the greatest gift. That's a lot of gift language in there, so let me explain a little bit. We don't deserve friendship. Friendship's a gift from God, and that gift should yield to the purposes of God to introduce people to Jesus every time. Anything that God gives you that we don't say, God, it's in your use, has become useless and idolatrous and is messing up our hearts and our lives. We need to use the things God has given to us so that people can have eternal life in Jesus and know him and rejoice in him and know fellowship and know community in Jesus. Friendship is the platform for discipleship, make friends, make disciples. Seventh observation, it is the character of Jesus to see you and know you before you come to him. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus' insight into our lives has plunged the depths before we're even aware of him. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows the nuances of your life. He knows the nuances of your thoughts, your emotions, the the things that are hard to wrestle through. The pain, the financial pain, the relational pain. He's there. He's there before you get there, because he's that good. Jesus' call on our life was placed before the real-time introduction happened. He knew Nathaniel. He knew his disciples, and they show up. and they're like, "How did you know me?" He's like, "I already called you. You're already going to follow me. You're my disciple." Jesus is passionate about his people. He's passionate about his disciples. When you follow Jesus, he loves you. He's all about you. He knows you intimately, and he wants to. Eighth observation. The foundation for knowing God is the revelation that we're known by God, meaning that sometimes we don't really know God until we realize He knows me. He knows me. And somehow, in knowing that he knows you, we begin to see the imprints of who he is. The woman at the well. Jesus told her everything, basically all her dirty stuff, right? You guys know the story. He's like, you're right. You don't have five husbands. You got six. Like, whoa. Yo, bro, don't judge me. I'm out of here. Like, what planet are you from? You don't say that. Stop. And then she felt known, and then what happened? She goes and tells the whole village about this guy that knows her, and she realizes he's the son of God. So here's what Nathanael says to Jesus. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What happened was Jesus said, I know everything about you, and he realized, well, you're God. What happened was Nathanael's identity was revealed by Jesus. And in that process, Jesus' identity was revealed to Nathanael because God's the only one who knows everything. Isn't that cool, though? Just kind of reads mail, and they're like, whoa, hark the herald angels sing, You are the king. Being known increases our depths of knowing. This is grace. I get to know God more the more I realize that he knows me. And what becomes evident is he's already there plundering the depths before I realize he knows me And he hasn't totally condemned me to hell yet, but he loves me. He's nurturing me. He's calling me to himself. He's calling me to repentance. He's calling me to life. That's grace. He's there. He's doing that for us. The portrait of God is embodied by the trail of grace that he leaves As he excavates your heart, starts chipping away. And we start to realize that's his handiwork. That's his handiwork. That's his handiwork. And we realize he is intimate. He is personal. Let me stop right here. We in this room need an intimate, personal God. We need community. There's a whole world out there that's serving many gods, and gods that aren't personal, and maybe they think he's sovereign. Our God is fully sovereign and fully loving, and that's shown on the cross, that he went there on his own accord, and he showed his love on his own accord. You will never find a God that is all-powerful and all-loving and humbles himself to show that to you other than Jesus. And let's just receive that in our hearts that we need that. We're broken. We've got broken relationships. We've got hurts and pains. We need a Jesus that is intimate, personal, giving of grace, renewing and gives hope. And that's the God that we serve. We identify the hands of the potter as the clay begins to form. We should credit God for shaping our lives. My ninth observation is a little less weighty. Led Zeppelin got nothing on Jesus. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Stairway to heaven. Just saying, Jacob's ladder. <laughs> Jesus bridges the gap. Jacob's ladder is just a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? When Jacob had this dream, he fell asleep sleeping on a rock because that's what they did back then. Man, I would have been like, man, this is the best time for a Sealy mattress commercial, you know? Like Jacob was sleeping on a rock, but we brought this mattress to him, and now he's not. Um, <laughs> you know that that would be helpful. But he's sleeping on a rock, gets this vision. These angels going up and down to heaven, right? And then has this whole encounter with God. And there's this foreshadowing that Jesus is the one that bridges the gap between the Father and us. He's the latter, He's the one that now angels are descending and ascending upon. He's the one that ushers us in to the heaven that we've been waiting for, but ultimately we're really waiting for him. And so Jesus is revealing this to his disciples. Jesus is the means by which spiritual aid comes to us. If you want prayer, go to Jesus. If you want health, Go to Jesus. If you need emotional strength, go to Jesus. There's an open heaven for you, and he's bridged the gap between you and the Father. I'd like to invite the worship team up. Um, We're gonna respond in three ways. First, we're gonna sing a song, and I'm gonna pray. Um, We're going to give. Give. There's a box in the back, and I would just encourage you, let the giving nature of Jesus be so impressed upon you that your heart would be open to sow practical seeds into the ministry of the church, into reaching this area, into reaching D.C., into reaching Kingstown. And so my prayer is that our hearts would be fueled with generosity, to see God use his people to do things in this area. And we're gonna take communion. This is a reminder of the body, the blood of Jesus that was spilt for us, that was broken for us. I would just encourage you, wait a little longer than usual. Meditate on it, like wow, God became a man. God was broken for me, for me? And let it seep into your day. Let it seep into your reality that Jesus has come to cover you with his blood. He gave his body so that you wouldn't have to. We're not sacrificing lambs anymore. We're not even giving our own lives. We don't have to go to hell anymore. We don't have to face the wrath of God because Jesus took our place for our sin, and he loves us, and he welcomes us in. If you want to know Jesus intimately, personally, you want to begin a relationship with him, tell somebody. Find Jeff. Find Larissa. Find Joe and Abby. Find me. Just tell him, man, I'm moved by the fact that Jesus gave his life for me, and I want to do something about that. Jesus, we love you, It's not easy to talk about the sacrifice you've made and to realize that discipleship is the outflow of realizing that you've atoned for our sins. God, I I pray, Lord, that we would be so moved by the fact that you laid down your life for us, that we would make disciples and just point people to you. God, thank you that you made yourself known to us. We didn't come looking for you. You came looking for us. And Lord, I pray that you would unite us as the community, the body of Jesus. And I pray that we would unite around the revelation of Jesus. I pray in community groups this week, Lord, that you would stir up unity in the body. God, to treasure Jesus together. And we thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.